Schisms, Religion Divided, Episode 2, Rome, Part 1, Republic to Empire. According to legend, the city of Rome was founded by two brothers, Romulus and Remus. According to one legend, they were descended from the Trojan prince Aeneas, their maternal grandfather was a Latin king, Numitor of Alba Longa, and their father was the god Mars, who raped their mother after her father had been deposed by his brother. Since the new king, Amulus, was afraid that these boys would take the throne from him, he ordered them to be drowned, but they were saved by a wolf who nursed them and raised them. When they grew up, they returned home and put their grandfather back on the throne. They then set off and founded their own kingdom on the banks of the Tiber River. But they fought over where to settle and what to name their kingdom. And in the ensuing fight, Romulus killed Remus and named the settlement after himself, Rome. Then to attract a population, he made his city a sanctuary where any poor, exiled, or unwanted person could find refuge. Unfortunately, that was almost entirely men, and no one wanted to allow their daughters to marry the filth that lived in Rome. So the Latin men invited the Sabines, a neighboring tribe, to a party and kidnapped all the single women to keep for wives for themselves, thus merging the Latin and Sabine tribes and establish a means to produce the next generation of Romans. Now, of course, that entire story is complete BS, but it's a legend, it's a myth, and back in prehistory, there isn't a historical record. That's why it's prehistory. But legends were told to help establish the identity of a people. And this legend was established and eventually written down. And it became the founding myth of Rome. The Greeks had their own, also with the Trojan prince, <laughs> the same Trojan prince, Aeneas. But we only need to go through one of the myths anyway. The archaeological evidence suggests that Rome was settled by Latins sometime between the 8th and 10th century BCE. And for most of their early years, they were dominated by the Etruscans, a tribe to the north. But by the 6th century BCE, they established a republic to protect the rights of the Latins and Sabines, the two tribes that had kind of merged in that area. Going back to the legend, Romulus was the first of seven kings of Rome, with the last being Tarquin the Proud. But he was deposed and a constitutional republic was established. And that republic, we do know, definitely existed, and we know there were probably kings before it. What they set up was a very complicated system of government with checks and balances, separation of power, and guaranteed rights for citizens. The magistrates and representatives were elected annually, with the two highest ranking being the consuls, who shared executive authority, further ensuring that no one person could take control. The Senate was made of nobility, who would advise the consuls, but the legislative power was held by the Comita Centuriata, or the Centuriate Assembly, as it's anglicized, and the Comita Tributa, or the Tribal Assembly. In the 4th century BCE, the Gauls expanded their territory into Italy, reaching Rome in 390. Most of the populace fled, but according to the legend... Some barricaded themselves on Capitoline Hill. Brennus, the Gaelic chieftain, laid siege for seven months, at the end of which the Romans negotiated a price of 1,000 pounds of gold to get him to agree to peace and withdraw. The Romans saw that the Gauls were using false scales, so they took up arms and defeated them. This changed Rome forever. 
Over the next hundred years, they conquered most of the Italian peninsula, and as they expanded, they would establish Roman colonies in the territories they conquered. In 281, they reached Tarentum, a Greek colony in southern Italy, but they failed to conquer it on their initial attempts. And for context, by this point in our last episode, Alexander had died and the four Hellenistic kingdoms had been firmly established. Rome was way, way behind. (laughs) And this point brings us to the Punic Wars, which to summarize quickly, Messina and Syracuse were two Greek city-states on the island of Sicily, which is just below the main Italian boot, and they went to war. Messina asked Carthage, who was the dominant power in the Mediterranean, to help them, which they did. But when Carthage wouldn't leave, Messina then asked Rome to intercede. Thus began the First Punic War in 264 BCE, lasting 20 years, ending with a Roman victory, Rome discovering how to use a navy, and the Roman conquest of Sicily, Corsica, and a few other islands. The Second Punic War began with the 219 BCE conquest of a pro-Roman city in Iberia, modern-day Spain, by Hannibal, the most famous Carthaginian general. The following year, Rome declared war. Hannibal responded to this by marching along with Gaelic allies, with Gaul being the home of the Gaelics, uh, being roughly modern-day France. They marched together across the Alps, invading Italy. After Rome's ridiculously insane defeat and loss of over 100,000 soldiers, according to the old histories, probably exaggerated numbers, uh, but still a ridiculous number of soldiers for that time period, a lot of their Italian and Greek allies switched sides, and this caused Rome to have to fight wars on all sides, including against Macedon in Greece, one of those Hellenistic uh, kingdoms. Rome regrouped and started a strategy of avoiding Hannibal, and instead they retook Italy and defeated Hannibal's allies. They then turned to invading Carthage's Iberian territories, taking that, and in 204, the Roman general... Scipio invaded Africa, forcing Carthage to recall Hannibal from Italy. Yes, the Roman army had managed to avoid Hannibal all the way to his home turf while he was still roaming around Italy. That was an insane strategy that should have failed. Rome didn't keep any of the land in Africa that they they took, but they left Carthage as a tiny rump state until the Third Punic War started in 149, in which they destroyed the city of Carthage, enslaved the citizens, and established the Roman province of Africa. By this time, in the Eastern Mediterranean, Rome was beginning its domination of the Greek and Hellenistic kingdoms that we talked about last time. After nearly 200 years of them fighting against each other, and the Seleucids facing massive territory loss at the hands of the Parthians in Persia, Maccabees in Judea, and Gauls from modern France settling in Anatolia, creating Galatia, And the Ptolemies really starting to see the effects of the brother-sister inbreeding on the cognitive abilities and mental stability of the rulers. Well, let's just say that the Hellenistic world was primed for Roman domination in the slow and, and gradual conquest of the Eastern Mediterranean. Since we've basically reached the end of the Republic, let's talk about the society that Rome developed. The class system was, it was very complex. At the most basic level, there were the patricians, who were the nobility that could trace their ancestry to the hundred patriarchs that settled Rome, or a consul. And the plebeians were the people who could not. 
The plebeians were further divided into land-owning citizens and poor citizens who did not own land, but were at least born free. Below them were the freedmen, former slaves, and below the freedmen were people who were slaves. The conquests and the expansion of the Republic provided a pretty steady supply of slaves, since the Romans would frequently enslave the population of at least some of the cities they conquered, such as we saw with Carthage. Those slaves would then be sold to patricians and landowning citizens. However, there were always other sources of slaves, such as children that a Roman family decided weren't providing enough benefit. Yeah, the Romans were pragmatic, to say the least. The landowning plebeian class eventually further split with the upper echelon becoming the equestrians, people who were rich enough to be able to afford a war horse. So while there were distinct classes over the course of several generations, it was possible for a family to have upward mobility. Theoretically, a slave could be freed, thus moving up to freedmen. His children born after he was freed could become citizens. Then their children could do well enough to buy land and join the landowning class. And after a few generations, gain enough wealth to become equestrians. Then through military service, one might gain enough clout to be elected consul, and then his children and all their descendants would be nobles and could join the Senate. The constant wars and conquests created more opportunities for mobility, as initially, no soldier was paid. They were all required to provide their own equipment, abandon their fields, and work for free. Early on, this meant that landowning farmers were the infantry and the patricians were the officers. Once the equestrian class developed, they would provide the cavalry. As Rome expanded, developed into an empire, and engaged in multi-decade wars, that wasn't enough and non-landowning citizens were allowed to enlist, with the patron forming the legion providing the equipment and weapons, as well as paying them for their service. The conquests were often followed up by establishing Roman colonies in their new provinces, where non-landowning soldiers might be given land. This really began a process of military service becoming a means of social mobility, one that we will continue to see expand when we move into the imperial period. The Roman religion, which we will cover more in depth next month, had gods, but they initially weren't really personified. The focus was on the relationship between humans and divinity, something that the Roman state took very seriously, complete with magistrates that were focused on just running the state religion, ensuring the temples were taken care of, that sacrifices were offered, and that the holidays were celebrated at the appropriate times. Among these magistrates was the Pontifex Maximus, or Supreme Priest, a title that would later be assumed by the emperors, and to this day by the Bishop of Rome, more commonly referred to as the Pope. Contact between Rome and Greece began very early, and Greece was far more culturally advanced, so Rome correlated their gods with the Greek gods, such as the Roman chief god Jupiter being associated with the Greek chief god Zeus. And with this, the Romans adopted the Greek myths as their own, which greatly advanced the Roman state religion. This also began the Hellenization of Rome, albeit with the literature, philosophy, culture, and gods being translated into Latin. This was further advanced by the importation of Greek slaves and scholars who served as nannies and teachers for the children of patrician and equestrian class families. And as a result, most of the higher classes of Rome were fluent in, or at least proficient, in Greek. And the Roman scholarly elite often preferred speaking Greek over Latin, much like you would see in the early modern period across Europe with French.
Rome was generally more stable than the dynasties of the Persian and Hellenistic empires we looked at last week, and this was largely because of the system of checks and balances and power being controlled by a large class of people. And while there was some democracy, the voting system was always rigged to give far more power to the rich nobility and minimize or eliminate the vote of the poor. However, just like those other states, the constant warfare was very taxing on society. The Republic rarely paid anyone for service. It was a duty. So landowners that served in the army had to spend years at a time away from their farms and grew poorer and poorer. At the same time, the poor non-landowning citizens were losing what gainful employment they might get as they were replaced by the plentiful supply of slaves from the conquests. This caused riots and uprises that destabilized things further until the triumvirate was established by Gaius Julius Caesar, Marcus Linicius Crassus, and Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus. Caesar supported the populares, the poor. Crassus was rich, and the power made him richer. And Pompey got to marry Caesar's daughter and gained more power in the Senate. Things fell apart when Caesar's daughter died, and Crassus died in battle when he invaded Parthia. After that, Pompey was afraid that Caesar would get pompous, having just conquered Gaul. And then he used the Senate to try to strip Caesar of his legions so that he could put him on trial strip him of titles and land, and impoverish him. Caesar couldn't believe that his friend had the Gaul, and took his legions with the famous crossing of the Rubicon, and took Rome. Meanwhile, Pompey fled Egypt into the arms of the lover that he and Caesar shared, Cleopatra, where he was murdered. Caesar, now victorious against nearly all foes, was granted many honors and titles, and in just the course of five years, he was granted four consulships, two ordinary dictatorships, two special dictatorships, one with a term of 10 years, and the last for perpetuity. But this was cut short with his murder on the Ides of March in 44 BCE by his enemies in the Senate. Caesar's friend, Marcus Antonius, took power, soon joined by Caesar's adopted heir, Octavian. The two then formed the second triumvirate, along with Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, one of their first acts was executing somewhere between 130 and 300 senators for supporting the Libertores that had murdered Caesar, and they spent much of the rest of the time hunting down and murdering the rest. In 42 BCE, the Senate deified Caesar as Divus Julius, thus making Octavian the adopted son of Caesar, Divi Filius, or the son of God. The triumvirate divided the empire amongst themselves, with Octavian taking the west, including Italy, Gaul, and Hispania, modern-day France and Spain. Antony took the eastern provinces, and Lepidus took Africa. The arrangement expired in 38 BCE and was renewed for another five years. Lepidus retired in 36 BCE after betraying Octavius in Sicily. By the end, Antony was living in Egypt with his lover, Cleopatra, yes, the same Cleopatra, this was when Ptolemaic Egypt was still independent, and shacking up with the queen of another kingdom was viewed as treason. Further, his lifestyle was too lavish and Hellenistic to be suitable for Roman statesmen. The final straw was the donations of Alexandria, where Antony gave Cleopatra all of the eastern Roman territories, the title queen of kings, and divided the lands and titles among her children, including the son that she had with Julius Caesar. A possible challenger to Octavian's position. This prompted war, and Octavian destroyed the Egyptian forces. 
In the end, Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide rather than be captured. Octavian then annexed Egypt and claimed the lands that Antony had donated. Having consolidated power and expanded the empire, especially bringing the wealth and grain of Egypt, it's no wonder that just four years later, in 27 BCE, Octavian, with absolute power, took the name Augustus and title of Principus, or First Citizen, as well as the title Imperator, or Commander. This is where we get Emperor and Prince from. The Republic is dead. Long live the Empire. Yes, the Star Wars theme would have been very appropriate right there, but I don't have the license for it. Augustus's reforms really were necessary. The Empire had grown too large and the government too unstable for the old systems that had been designed for a peaceful city-state. However, rather than update the Republic to better allow for the larger territory, the Republican institutions were consolidated into the Senate. The Senate was stripped of almost all power, including control of the legions and governorships of the provinces. Now the army was set at 28 legions, all directly responsible to Augustus, and all governors and commanders of the legions, who were generally one and the same, were appointed by Augustus. This brought stability and peace throughout the empire, beginning the Pax Augustus, later called the Pax Romana. For our story, few of the emperors of the next three centuries were particularly significant. Several after Augustus was Nero. Nero took the throne after his stepfather was murdered by his mother. Nero then sent the army to invade modern-day Wales, and the resistance was much stronger than expected. By the time they made it to the northwest coast, they crossed the Menai Strait to the sacred island of Mona, the final druid stronghold. There they massacred man, woman, and child, destroyed the shrines and sacred groves, and threw many of the sacred standing stones into the sea. Meanwhile, in modern East Anglia, a Celtic queen rose in resistance, but she committed suicide when her forces were defeated. Nero also started the official policy of persecuting Christians, is thought to have started the Great Fire of Rome, killed his mother and wife, then had a few more wives, as well as affairs with both men and women, and left the running of the empire to his advisors while engaging in drunken orgies. In 65, a conspiracy to kill him failed, but in 68, the armies in Gaul and Hispania revolted, the Praetorian Guard abandoned him, and the Senate condemned him, leading him to kill himself. There was no clear successor, so 68 was the year of four emperors. Eventually, Titus Flavius Vespinanius, better known as Vespian, took over. He was the general in command of the imperial forces fighting in the First Jewish-Roman War, which had started with the uprising in 66. He left his son Titus in command of the army, and Titus was successful in defeating the Jews with the siege and destruction of Jerusalem including the destruction of the Second Temple. That happened in 70. According to Josephus, who wrote under Vespian's sponsorship, the siege killed 1.1 million people and 97,000 were captured and enslaved. Many of the survivors fled and scattered across the Mediterranean, but this made Jews pretty unpopular with the imperial government. Titus refused the wreath of victory, saying, There is no merit in vanquishing people forsaken by their own god. So, at this point, if you're Jewish, the empire doesn't like you. And if you're Christian, the empire doesn't like you. And if you're Christian, 
and you look like you might be Jewish, the Empire definitely doesn't like you. Domitian was Vespian's son and Titus's brother. He took the throne after his father and then brother had died. And he preferred to be called Dominus et Deus, or Master and God. He built at least two temples for Jupiter, and he tried his best to equate himself with the gods, further expanding the practice, dating back to Augustus, of living emperors claiming to be divine. Domitian died without an heir in 96, and the Senate chose Nerva to be the new emperor. But he died just two years later, but he'd named a successor, Trajan who ruled until 117. And remember that upward mobility that I mentioned earlier? Well, Trajan was a soldier born to a non-patrician family in Hispaniola, but he rose through the ranks, was a general under Domitian, and became emperor. He rose from commoner to emperor, the first to do that. His rule saw the empire reach its territorial maximum, stretching from Britain to the Persian Gulf. The Second Jewish-Roman War and biggest gains against the Parthian Empire were also in his time. Hadrian was next, who was born from a mixed Roman and native Iberian family in Hispania, the first not purely Roman emperor. He crushed the Bar Kokhba revolt in Judea. Hundreds of thousands of more Jews were killed, and the province was basically destroyed and merged with Syria and named Provincia Syria Palestinia as a direct kind of FU to the Jews in the region. Hadrian and his successor, Antonius Pius, promoted the arts and sciences, building aqueducts, baths, libraries, theaters, temples, and mausoleums. The final of the five good emperors, which had started with Nerva, was Marcus Aurelius. This time had been a golden age with wealth, prosperity, and happiness throughout most of the empire. Presumably, as long as you weren't Jewish or Christian. Marcus Aurelius died in 169, and the emperors who followed him oversaw the steady decline of the empire. The remainder of the second century saw such horrors as a year with five emperors, more assassinations, the imperial throne being auctioned, Rome being invaded by Roman armies. But that was all child's play compared to the crisis of the third century, When they had 26 emperors in a 49-year period, the economy was plagued by hyperinflation for decades. They were hit by multiple plagues. They were invaded by foreign armies, something that had not really happened since, what, going all the way back to Carthage. They had civil wars, and by the end, Syria, Palestina, Asia Minor, and Egypt broke away to form the Palmyrene Empire, and Britain and Gaul broke away to form the Gaelic Empire, tearing the empire apart. And by this point, we're to the year 275, and we're going to stop here for now. But let's take a few moments to summarize what we've talked about here. Rome always valued order over everything else. In the Republican period, this was maintained by the Senate, with the patrician class maintaining virtually all power. This started to fall apart with the conquest of the Punic Wars, as the increased wealth, especially for the rich, and the structure that they had resulted in senators having their own armies and provinces while the poor were hungry and angry. The empire, in all practicality, was a military dictatorship where all power was concentrated into a single, unified military chain of command, with the emperor at the top. As the governorships were now held by the legates, or the generals at the top of a legion, or in a larger province, 
multiple legions. It was a position that was earned through a professional system. Unlike the earlier system where senators often got their position for being born in the right family with the right pedigree and enough money. And just based on that accident of birth, they could get to be the governor of a province. To maintain order, or more accurately, to facilitate the military's ability to maintain order, Rome built a network of roads, many of which were used for more than a millennia. The way Rome set up colonies to homogenize culture, although it wasn't all that effective in the Hellenistic East, meant that anywhere you went, people spoke either Greek or Latin, and a lot of people were fluent in both. This meant that trade flowed easily, and so did ideas, setting up for the perfect environment for Christianity to spread, despite the official policy of persecution. As for why we're stopping here, the Roman order is about to be completely reworked again, which will inform the discussion of the schism that occurred after Chalcedon. But before we can get to that, we need to move from the geopolitical background and move to the social and religious background of the ancient Roman world. In the next several episodes, we will be talking about ancient paganism, Judaism, early Christianity, and some of the early heresies. As far as the Roman Empire's political history, we won't be getting back to that until summer, because we have a lot more to cover before we get to the time period where Christianity gained favored status in the empire. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you want to leave some feedback, you can send me an email at feedback at schismpod.com, or you can leave a comment or feedback on the website. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter, at SchismPod. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. And we'll be back next month 